College Basketball Madness, the USA Today Sports College Hoops podcast. It is our first one of the offseason, um, basically because we've been waiting to see what happens with the NBA draft deadline and who's coming back to school. Now we know. Bring on our buddy from NBCSports.com, Rob Douster, who is currently campaigning for himself. Your big offseason storyline right now is you're trying to get a team into the tournament. Yeah, a bunch of guys that I played with in college and I are put together a team for the basketball tournament, which is that like uh, that two million dollar winner take all thing that that is on ESPN. And you know, I don't think we're going to win. Like, I'm pretty sure we have zero chance of ever winning. But if we get in, then like you get to see me get embarrassed on national uh, television because it'll be on ESPN. And like, who wouldn't want to see me getting dunked on? I mean, that's a pretty big selling point. I think that yeah. probably yeah. all of your followers have like a very love hate relationship with you. I think everybody does, not just followers. <laughs> well, you should. I feel like you should have more votes than you do. We're working on it. We're getting there. We just uh, we we surpassed triple digits this morning, actually. And if we get to if we get to like a thousand, we got six days left to get nine hundred votes, and that's all I need. So all you got to do is go to thetournament.com, search for the Vassar Roses. Don't don't laugh. That's a great name. And uh, yeah, go vote is for us. Is there a reasoning vote. behind the rose part? Uh, yeah. So Vassar. I mean, I know the- you went to Vassar. Yeah, well, Vassar is the Brewers is their nickname, mm-hmm. but we we're not allowed to use that because it's uh, it's trademarked or whatever. And the name before it became so it used to be an all girls school, and when you it was all girls school, it was the Vassar Roses. So uh, we <laughs> we kind of enjoyed that irony and decided to go with it. Oh, uh, I really hope you guys get into this thing now. Yeah, you voted for us too. I so. did. I even yeah, made yeah, an account yeah. to vote for you. Yes, yeah, and Nicole Hourback support. So yes. you know, I'm, I'm feeling really good about it. If you Great. can get behind me, anybody can get behind me. 900, right? 900 votes to go. We're recording this on Thursday morning, so get voting because what else are you doing anyway on the computer? Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so Rob, let's talk about what I actually brought you on here. Although, I wish it was kind of like, I wish you had a video component because then we could just have photos of your child who looks just like you and is adorable. Love him on Instagram, by the way. He's my um, uh, Twitter profile picture. Oh, well, there we go. Yes, he is adorable. Um I, that actually makes me feel really good because I feel like you're always like the first like when I post something. Oh, I, first off, off I so love... do you have like my notifications turned on? <laughs> no, I do not. I just Instagram is my favorite form of social media. I feel like I'm on it the most because like I feel like it's a most mostly enjoyable platform, and like Twitter is so snarky and negative and like sometimes stressful if other people are doing things or things you have to chase all of a sudden. So like I like Instagram, and also. All my friends who are posting baby pictures on there, they all have cute children, which is good for them because then they get a lot of likes. So I'm all about it. And I also yeah, like I've, I post, noticed that I post dog pictures and like I have a very cute dog. So you get a lot of likes. It's all it's a very positive place. Instagram. Yeah, I noticed that whenever I post pictures of my kid, I get like three times as many likes as any other picture that I post. Well, I think that's that's everyone liking the, your kid better than you yourself. Yeah, I don't really blame them, though, either. Okay. Like I said, a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with uh, <laughs> Mr. Doster over here. Um, all right, so let's get to actual basketball. Um, although you can check out Chase on Instagram, on Rob's Instagram. Um, all right, so the NBA draft deadline, well, there's been a bunch of different various deadlines, but this was the one that mattered uh, where college guys, thanks to the new system, uh, could go get invited to the combine. They could work out with teams. They could have meetings. They could get really direct feedback from NBA people um, and not just kind of third parties, not just your buddies saying, oh, you should, t- you're totally going to get drafted. 
X, Y, and Z. So yesterday, Wednesday was kind of a flurry of decisions coming down, and and a lot of them were guys coming back to school. Um, first off, I mean, what was your what do you think about the rule itself? I know it kind of corrected a rule from a few years ago where coaches where everyone had to like withdraw themselves from the draft ten days after the final four, which was obviously way too soon, and guys were making you know very not informed decisions. But what was your impression of the process? this go around and and just like looking at the whole of the decisions of guys who came back versus left do you think it worked well well i love it you know i i'm always a proponent of giving the guys the athletes themselves as as much of a chance to succeed as possible and i think this is exactly what uh this rule does you know it lets them go out and actually talk to nba teams and actually let you know these NBA scouts and these front office people go out and see them play. They they get an invite to the combine. You know if you don't get an invite to the combine, it's a pretty clear sign that you're probably not going to end up getting drafted. They get feedback. They get to find out. You know even if they don't end up staying in the draft, like going through the process and seeing what an NBA workout entails, and you know hearing from these guys saying you know you got to be a better shooter. You can't create your own shots or learn how to dribble or you know you need to get a post move or whatever it is. Uh, they get feedback and they find out what they have to work on to get better. And I just, I think everything about it is great. And, you know, if, we, if, if you think about it, would Melo Trimble have come back if he didn't have a chance to go through the process and basically get told, like, dude, you're not going to be a draft pick. Like, yeah. you're not going to be a first-round pick. You might be lucky to get picked in the second round. Like, Caleb Swanigan, I don't think that he'd be coming back to school if he didn't go through the process and have people basically say, like, look, you got to lose some weight. you got to become a better scorer. Like, you got a chance to be a first-round pick, all that. So I think we would have lost uh, some of these guys that ended up coming back to school, you know, when they got that harsh – like, Isaiah Briscoe, Tyler Dorsey, Malik Newman, like those guys would be gone unless they went out and they, you know, faced the harsh reality of the fact that, you know what, you guys might not be good enough to actually be pros. So I I love everything about the role. I thought it was great. Me too. Um, And I completely agree that it would be guys probably like Melo Trimble who would go, potentially go undrafted, find themselves on those lists of, you know, here's a cautionary tale of, you know, a guy who's a pretty good college player and went too early. And I think that one other thing that jumped out when you're talking about like specific things, if, you know, if they're getting specific feedback from NBA GMs or assistant GMs about you can't create your own shot or you need to get better from three point range or whatever it is, is that I just remember so many times last season, Buddy Healed, Yogi Ferrell, guys, and again, it was a shorter time period, but guys that thought about leaving last year getting that sort of specific feedback and then actually really improving that aspect of their game so I think I think it's going to be really good for college I think honestly there was also like a kind of a side effect that it created a little bit of buzz in May about some of these guys and like the fact that a Mellow Trimble or Caleb Swanigan comes back that's a name that people know which is something that college basketball struggles with with so many one and done guys and guys going in and out I think I think that was kind of a side benefit and you know, I, I solicited some Twitter questions, and we got a couple that are wondering if there's what if you could tweak anything about the new system. Is there anything you would change? Yeah, I think I would let them have more access to agents. Like I, I've never understood why it's a bad thing for these kids that potentially have like millions and millions of dollars in future earnings to have an advisor that's been through the process and you know can kind of tell them like, okay, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do that. It's not like they're you know, money necessarily doesn't have to be changing hands there for, uh, for for it to work. And it's like agents end up working for the players. It's not right. the other way around. So I don't understand why it's a bad thing for those guys to have that kind of representation. And Because a lot of these families are just going into the process blind. You know, what's wrong with 
letting them have a guy that can kind of guide them through. It's not like there's anything sinister about it. Like agents have these this negative connotation because by making them someone that can't have contact with the players, then it, it, it kind of put, forces it into like this black market where you got the runners coming through and you got these guys that are you know trying to force kids into certain programs because they know if they go to that program, these kids are going to end up coming back to them instead of just you know letting them sign with the agent. No money changes hands, nothing like that. But it's just now you got a guy looking out for them and looking out for what that player's best interest is in the long term as opposed to making sure that he's going to end up getting that signature on a contract whenever it's time for them to you know turn pro and uh, start earning a commission for those agents. Well, and also what ends up happening is you have guys who are just guys that grow up kind of around them becoming agents after, you know, so then they mm-hmm. become the guy and they don't know what they're doing either. And I, I think that I agree with you. I think that agent reform and that sort of issue is something that like, I, you know, constantly hear, hear about, you know, like a, the Division One NCAA governance meeting, you know, like co- people on committees and administrators and athletic directors like are interested, I think, in looking at that a little bit. But you're right. It would have to be something about money not changing hands or sort of like the idea that's been proposed about like if you don't pay athletes directly, you could put money in a trust that they could access after they exhaust their eligibility, like the different sort of things. Um, there might be there might be possibilities there. I think one other well, it, although if you if you reform the agent piece of this, this part could go. But a guy who doesn't get drafted could then maybe come back to college. I know that's super late in the calendar of things, and like you know, coaches figuring out rosters and scholarships. But I think that's the next piece in this, and and in college football too, um, which is actually looking at college basketball and seeing how well this like extra information, the combine, all of these steps have worked. Um, but I think the next step would be if you're really looking out for like student athlete well-being, which is, you know, this era that we're in where a lot of, have been a lot of changes to really benefit players. I think you got to let them come back to college, too, if they don't get drafted. Yeah, it gets a little complicated there just because it the ends money. up being so late in the process. And, you know, a lot of these guys, when they go through these workouts, like someone has to pay for it. Right. You know, like if you're if you're from Philly and you're going out to work out for the Lakers in L.A., you know, how are you getting there? How are you paying for the hotel? How are you paying for the flight? How are you paying to, you know, get to and from um, the practice facility? Right. I think what, uh, I was reading somewhere that like a bunch of the Big Ten guys, that, you know, and the Big Ten might be the biggest winner out of all because a lot of teams got key guys back. But about guys just like doing workouts for the local teams because they could just drive there or whatever. And still that being really valuable. So, yeah, I know the money money piece becomes an issue. Um and and like you said, I mean, the timeline, you're adding another month to this from here, which is already pretty late. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there are ways to tweak it. I, I think it was certainly a big success um, to you specifically, which players were kind of these, you know, which which are, are the impact guys who came back and, and really impacted. I know you you updated your um, way too early top 25 which guys were you kind of waiting to see if they came back and what that would mean for next season? Well, one one thing real quick based on what you just said, I, I think it's really important to note that there are ways to tweak this. And it's not that we have to change anything because it works really well yes. right now. There's ways to streamline it to make it better. But the fact that we changed it to what it is and where it only needs a tweak is uh, is, is something that's really important. Um, the, the two biggest guys or the two biggest decisions for me uh, for guys that were coming back were Josh Hart and Villanova and then – Dylan Brooks and Tyler Dorsey at Oregon. You know, obviously Josh Hart is the leading scorer, the best player on the reigning national champs. Getting him back 
kind of lets Villanova, like he's the guy that lets Villanova do what they want to do. You know, he can he can play big, he can rebound, he, you can stick him at a four if you need to. Uh, he can guard point guards and, and two guards on switches. Um, he can knock down threes. He attacks the rim. Like he he frees everything up in that system in, in the way that Villanova plays. And you know, bringing back a guy like that obviously is good for Villanova. I think it makes him you know a top five, top three kind of team heading into next year. I think they have the best chance to repeat of anybody probably since. Uh, the Billy Donovan yep. Florida Gators won back to what was that two thousand six and two thousand seven. Yep. So getting him back was huge. And then you know Dylan Brooks and Tyler Dorsey are the two best scores for an Oregon team that we, we talked about this last year, Nicole. Where no one really knew quite how good they were, but that was a really really good basketball mm-hmm. team. They won the Pac twelve. I think they were top five by the end of the year. Um, and Brooks again, the comparison I like to make there is like he's kind of like their the Oregon's version of Draymond Green. He lets them play big. He lets him play small. You know, he's a super skilled guy. Like, I don't think he's a pro because he's not quite that athletic. I think he's got to shed a little bit of weight and get quicker. But he averaged like 16 points, five boards, and three assists. And then you got a guy like Tyler Dorsey who averaged 14 as a freshman. Like, getting those two guys back makes Oregon, instead of being like a top 25, potentially a second weekend team, like, we're looking at a team that can make it the final four at this point. So, you know, to me, those were the two biggest decisions right there and the two biggest winners in the process. Well, and I think what's interesting about Oregon, and, and I, jumps out off the page is that they return five of their top seven scorers and that's like pretty unusual for the way that Dana Altman has built rosters Oregon until now I mean usually they're you know they have a big influx of transfers and and they're kind of meshing things together but this year I think the expectations will be really high they'll be Pac-12 favorites because they return so much and then obviously they return a lot of talented guys so I think it's going to be interesting to see just that program take a different step because of the way that the roster is built. Um, but I'm totally with you on Villanova. I actually had them as our number one winner because also, I mean, obviously you're losing Ryan Archdiakono and Daniel Oshefu, Um and Arch will be, will be a huge loss. I mean, um, I, I just remember Jay Wright joking about last year, how he's a little worried about this coming season because he's going to have to spend more time with his point guard because he kind of just ignored Arch. He knew he'd make the right decisions and like, you know, their whole, they love each other. They have the same thought process. They, you know, that whole connection with Jay. Um, So that'll be interesting, but I think they're going to be really good again. um, I also think Xavier is going to be really good. And I think it was big to get Trevon Blewett back and Edmund Sumner didn't even test the waters. Um, So, you know, I think it was, I think yesterday was like a big day for, for some of these teams. I think, even a team like Duke that, you know, didn't – Grayson Allen didn't, you know, withdraw yesterday. That he, That's a team that benefited from uh, the new rules and just him coming back, and they're going to be loaded. Um, are they Are they your preseason number one? Yeah, I think they have to be. You know, at, at this point, just with who they bring – think about it like this. So Grayson Allen averaged 22 points, five boards, and four assists, I think it was. He shot like 42% from three last season. Uh, I think we had him as a second-team All-American. He was a guy projected as – you know, kind of a top 20, top 30 pick in the NBA draft. And he might be the third or fourth best player on Duke next season. Yeah. So when you, when you think about it in those terms, like it, it depends on, you know, how well does Jason Tatum adjust and is Frank Jackson really a point guard? And, you know, is Harry Giles healthy? He's got, had those two knee surgeries. But uh, just for the amount of talent on that roster and how well the pieces fit together, I think you got to put Duke number one. Well, and they, you know, it's just like anything that could go right has gone right for them lately, obviously with recruiting and, and the Giles and Tatum deal. But, I mean, even Emil Jefferson – 
got cleared, got his redshirt approved or whatever. So he'll be on the team and on the roster. And he was such an important piece as we saw when he got injured last year that he was a glue guy, a leader guy that that they missed. Um, And they obviously are going to have a lot more depth this season. I'm with you. I think they got to be number one. Um, I also find it kind of interesting that, you know, the way that these recruiting classes have gone at least the last few years – it's kind of like every other year there's like a blockbuster class and this is one of them. But like last year outside of Ben Simmons, you know, and then Ingram came on and, you know, you had, um, I mean, it was, there was a drop off, but then, you know, two years ago, it just kind of feels like we're, it's cyclical and I don't know why that is, but, um, and you hear it about the draft. I mean, of course you have, you know, the top two picks, everyone seems to know they're going to be Simmons and Ingram. Um, we don't know which order, but like it's sort of then everyone's like, eh, it's kind of a meh draft because, you know, there's not other guys who've really separated themselves. But then I'm sure next year's draft is going to be loaded. And it's just kind of interesting. So it's like every other year, Duke and Kentucky in particular are especially loaded. Yeah, it, it is kind of it's funny how that kind of plays out that way. And, you know, I think it kind of plays into the idea that I don't know if you saw what Jeff Morzello ESPN wrote and how much he got crushed from calling Kentucky an underachiever, but it's this idea that when Kentucky always gets all these great guys, like sometimes those pieces aren't necessarily going to fit together great. Like, and I think what happened was with the 2012 Kentucky team that won the title with Davis, Anthony Davis and Michael Key Gilchrist and all those guys, and then what Duke did in 2015, it kind of spoiled us uh, as in terms of how difficult it is to like bring all these freshmen in, transition them to the college level, get them to play together, get them to learn a new system, um, get them to focus on like actually being in college instead of having one eye on the yep. NBA and turning that into a season where you can go on and win a national title. There's a reason like uh, Kentucky's only won a single national title in this. What, what has it been like? Basically, eight year run that they've been doing this one and done thing. There's a reason that Duke's only won one national title while they've been doing this one and done thing for five years. Like people kind of overestimate just how easy it is to do what Coach Cal and Coach K are doing. So uh, I think what to your point, I think what we're going to see next season is uh, is these guys have a lot of success. Like I think Duke is going to be um, really, really good. I, I don't want to say they're going to go forward, you know, because I don't think that anyone can go undefeated in the ACC, but they're going to be as good as probably that 2015 Kentucky team just in terms of watching them and seeing how dominant they can be. Well, what's also interesting and also gets overlooked when we just kind of say, oh, yeah, you know, they're rolling the ball out there and – you know, all these freshmen are just so talented, they take over and they win the games, is that the two teams that you mentioned, the two championship-winning teams from each place, had very key veteran guys in those teams, and it got completely overlooked, and we sort of almost also took for granted the way that, like, Anthony Davis took a back seat to some other players and the way that, you know, he, I know, you know, Cal's favorite quote or favorite stat throughout that year was like, he took the fourth most shots on the team. And then for Duke, that Quinn Cook, who people thought might get pushed out and not even play much because of Tyus Jones, like was such an integral piece to them, kind of the heart of the team. So it's almost like that's another reason to like this year's Duke team is because you, you have Grayson Allen back. You have Matt Jones, Emil Jefferson, um, and then last year, you know, like Luke Kennard, Chase Jeter, and you have other guys, but you have Grayson Allen, who is the guy who's going to dive on the floor, maybe trip somebody. You have Emil Jefferson, just the kind of this this very veteran leader. He has been through a lot of ups and downs with Duke. And so it's just, I, you know, those are the pieces that make you think this is a team that's not going to lose many games because, you know, the freshmen are going to have off nights or they're going to, you know, maybe they're going to hit a freshman wall or maybe they're not going to, you know, 
be ready for a certain style of play or whatever. But if you have those other guys around them, that's kind of the key. And I think that also gets overlooked during this like one and done era. And oh, look how look Duke's done it. Kentucky's done it. You can just win a national championship if you have like three or more really good one and done players. Yeah, the key is getting those guys to buy into a role, right? Like yep. Quinn Cook went from being, I think he basically started for two and a half years at the point guard spot. And like when you're a point guard, like that's an identity, that's a mindset for you. And then they bring in a freshman and they move him off the ball. And his ability to accept the role that he was asked to play was enormous in, in Duke's success and Duke's ability to, to get to the Final Four and win a national title. And then the 2012 team, like I'll always argue this, that Anthony Davis and Michael Keith Gilchrist were role players on that Kentucky team like they were they were the best players yep. but they also played a, a specific role they weren't the guys that had offense uh, had plays called for them you know they didn't build an offense around them they were just kind of out there like Anthony Davis was setting screens and rolling to the rim Michael K. Gilchrist was basically a junkyard dog and the fact that they bought into what Cal wanted them to do and it was even like that with 2015 Kentucky team like Carl Towns averaged what like 10 points a game for that team yeah. and look at him now you know, there he might be the you know best prospect in all of basketball at this point in the world. Like he might be in five years, he might be the best player in the world. He scored ten points a game at Kentucky. Yeah, and even if that's you know, obviously there's a mental adjustment to like being willing to like have that be your stat line and kind of like just accept a role, but also just like the trust that like especially if you're like a Towns and you know it's going to be one year in college that like you're going to develop enough that and you have the whole rest of your career to go you don't need to be trying to do too much and I think that's been that was what was most impressive about that Kentucky team to me was that um you know for all the talk about platoons and you know even when they 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 really didn't have ego issues which I think the whole narrative the whole season was we were all kind of waiting for them to have that happen um and anyway so let's switch gears for a second to your third Number three in your preseason top 25 is Kansas. And they actually get a lot back, too. Um, and they have their backcourt back, and then they're getting the number one recruit in the class in Josh Jackson. I'm just wondering, I mean, you know, Andrew Wiggins, there was Andrew Wiggins' sweet steak. They won, and then also they've had um, D- Chick Diallo. They had, they've had top-tier recruit guys who've not always had the best season um and and i wonder do, do you think that josh jackson will have the kind of season he's capable of or do you think there's something i, I think you wrote about this a couple weeks ago about kansas and the one and done guys yeah it always seems like bill self is the guy that that kind of gets crushed for not having a lot of success with these one and done players and you know some of it is fair and some of it is just like a, a he's a, almost a victim of circumstance like at this point kansas fans crushed me for this the other day but i think that he almost kind of ends up being the guy that like gets the best players that don't want to go to Duke and Kentucky or that Duke and Kentucky don't want. And um, so the, he kind of ends up with a guy like Shek Diallo who, you know, we should have seen his struggles coming. Like he was a guy that was a little bit undersized, that was successful basically because he played harder and was more athletic than people at the high school level. And it was kind of the same thing with Cliff Alexander. Like those guys are undersized power forwards that can't really do anything once you get them away from like, eight feet from the rim. Then you throw in the fact that they both had, you know, NCAA eligibility issues. Like I think Sheck was suspended for something like four months in the first five games. Took him a while to learn what the offense was like. You could see him forget plays that he was supposed to be running offensively. And so I think that kind of built on this narrative. Um, and 
uh, to answer your question, I think that Josh Jackson is actually going to have a great year. There's a, the reason that we have Kansas number three is because the I think that the, he just fits in so much better with this team as compared to what Andrew Wiggins fit in with uh, when he was a freshman. Like you said, Kansas has a ton coming back. You know, they have Frank Mason at the point. They have Devontae Graham at the two. They have veteran big guys. You know, Carlton Bragg looks like he's going to be ready to step into that Perry Ellis role. Like Josh Jackson is going to have to go to Kansas and basically fill a role to start. Like they don't need him to be the alpha dog. They don't need him to be a guy that carries a team. That Andrew Wiggins team started three freshmen. It was Wayne Selden, Andrew Wiggins, and Joel Embiid, a sophomore Perry Ellis, and their starting point guard was Nadir Tharp, who ended up basically getting run out of the program after his junior season because he wasn't able to be a leader on that team. And I think that when you, if you would put Wiggins into the situation that Josh Jackson is walking into, one where there are veterans, one where there's already leadership on the roster, one where he basically just has to kind of play within himself until he learns how to be better than that, I think that what you would see is Wiggins have a little bit more success. The other part of it is I don't think Josh Jackson has the same amount of hype. Like the reason that we thought that yeah. Wiggins was a disappointment was he averaged, I think he what, averaged what, 17 points, six boards, a couple assists. Uh, I think he was, he might have been first team All Big 12, maybe he was second team All Big 12. He was the best perimeter defender he had. Like all in all, like he had a really good season. Problem was, we were expecting like Kevin Durant or Michael Beasley or someone like that, and that's just not really who he was. Right. But Josh Jackson, I don't think anyone's really expecting him to be. You know, this guy that averages 27 points a game or whatever it is. Like, they're expecting him to be basically Andrew Wiggins. So, if he outlives that, if he's a guy that averages 18 points, you know, on a team that's top five in the country, all of a sudden he's a success story. And people are saying, like, oh, he changed the Bill self narrative. When in fact, all this changes the expectations we have for the guys that go to Kansas. Right. And, and I think that that's a good point um, to, to bring up, too, because that year. We had the it was Wiggins and Jabari Parker, and both of them had gotten Sports Illustrated covers and comparisons to LeBron since they were, you know, four, 13, 14 years old. And that was like a different level of hype. Um, and I don't know if it's just that we are used to, you know, really good freshmen coming in now, a couple years later. Um, but it doesn't feel that way really about anyone in this freshman class outside the fact that, like, it's just a really strong top tier class and like you know peach jam last year and you know seeing these guys on the aau circuit you're like super impressed by them um and you got guys like but but everyone you know there's a bunch of them at kentucky there's a bunch of them at duke kansas it, it just sort of feels like um maybe the wealth is spread a little bit more and yeah, and there's, I think you know there's just there's a group of really good freshmen coming in yeah, and I think we've also learned our lesson a little bit. Like, we got burned a little bit by Wiggins and, and Javari Parker, who weren't quite as good as, you know, we were kind of saying they were going to be. We got burned by Ben Simmons, who, you know, apparently isn't the next LeBron James. Shocker there. And uh, so I think that, you know, maybe it'll change uh, once we get closer to the season. But I think, like, we, us being the media, I think we've kind of learned that, like, we can't quite overhype these kids as much as people are expecting. Because you can say... You know, this kid has a chance to be, you know, he's one of the best prospects we've ever seen. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be um, a great player immediately at the college level. Because you got to remember, they're still 18, 19 years old. They're still developing. When we project these kids as prospects, we're looking at them five or six years down the line. It doesn't necessarily mean right now they're able to dribble the ball and shoot the ball as well as we think they will be in the future. Which is kind of funny to end up watching, um, you know, because like, we, we see them very early in their development. And even the guys who stay for a few years and college like it's kind of funny to like turn on the NBA playoffs and kind of see how guys are like like 
Kawhi Leonard or like, you know, just it's it's just funny seeing guys that we saw like, you know, in an earlier stage have like breakout NBA careers. But um, yeah, I think that's a great point about kind of not overhyping guys, not having to compare everyone to LeBron. And, you know, with Ben Simmons, he was stepping into a situation where, you know, we didn't know how the guys around him were going to react and the way that that team was the dynamics of that team. We, you know, thought that he could carry a team and, you know, maybe not the best coach in college basketball. And there were different things that, that came into play that I don't know if we necessarily all expected. But speaking of Simmons, um, we did get a question. This is actually from my friend Ross from college, who is a big Celtics fan. So he is wondering who – Sorry, Red, my dog, is barking. He's trying to get on the podcast because his name is Red Auerbach and we're talking about the Celtics, apparently. So Ross is wondering who's worth taking at number three. Well, I've never seen the the Bender kid, um, the European kid, so I can't really speak to him. But, I, you know, I, I really like Chris Dunn's potential at the NBA level. Um, I'm not quite as high on him as I was – before the season, because I thought he could end up being a guy that could be a six or seven time all star. Uh, his issue is that he just never like it never seemed like he learned how to make better decisions, and that was the biggest knock we had on him as a junior. Like he does, uh, he does a lot of dumb stuff. There's just things where you're like, why, like why are you making that pass? Why are you fouling a guy 75 feet from the rim when you have three fouls and there's 16 minutes left in the game? Like he does stuff like that where it's just kind of like, dude, you're like you're a point guard, like you shouldn't be doing that. So. But part of it is that I think it might have been because he just didn't have that much talent around him. Like, it was basically Chris Dunn and Ben Bentall at Providence and nobody else. You could see that he lost confidence in guys like Rodney Bullock and Ryan Fazekas by the end of the year. So it was almost like he had to go one-on-three on every possession. And if he wasn't trying to make a tough shot, he was trying to force a pass to a guy to give him an easy layup because, you know, it's not like they were knocking down three. So I I think that he's going to end up being a really good player. The problem is with Dunn going to the Celtics is they just have, like, how many six foot four guards that struggle shooting the ball do you need? You know, they got Avery Bradley, they got Marcus Smart, they got all these guys that, that kind of play that same position. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the Celtics end up doing with that pick. For me, I'm more interested in what they do with one of their later picks in the first round. I think that they should end up, I would hope that they end up getting a kid like Scallop this year because I know that he didn't have a great year, but I, I'm still really bullish on him as a prospect. And I would just love to see a guy with his size and his shooting ability, get put under Brad Stevens, give him a year or two to develop. He wouldn't have to have an immediate impact. It's already a playoff team. And just see what like he can blossom into when he got put in a situation. I, I think that if you're a prospect that needs a lot of, you know, kind of the, the development and a lot of uh, pushing to reach your um, potential, I, th- I don't know if there's three better places for you to end up than uh, – Boston, San Antonio, or Golden State. So I would love to see Scal end up in a place like Boston just to see what he could turn into. I'm pretty sure that Brad Stevens could turn me into an NBA player. So I uh, have faith in him. And also, you know, it's also been pretty cool to watch uh, Oklahoma City in the playoffs and kind of Billy Donovan. You know, obviously you see why he wanted that job and kind of walking into his position, walking into a uh, situation where you've got Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and you can potentially get to the NBA Finals. I mean, I, I just think it's pretty cool to see him doing that. You know, I miss our college guys who have left us for the NBA, um, but it's pretty cool to see him have the season that they're having and, and starting to get some credit for being a good coach. I mean, those those Florida teams, 
And even the ones, the three Elite Eight teams in a row, whenever that streak ended a couple years ago, those were always like good to great players. Um, and they were not winning games the way that, you know, we were talking about Duke and Kentucky during this one and done era. So, he, he, you know, he's a great coach and that's been pretty cool to watch too. Yeah, and the cool part about it is that he basically spent the first like seven, eight months of the season getting crushed by NBA people that didn't realize like just how good he oh, yeah. was as a basketball coach. So uh, I, I'm right, I don't know if you read the Lee Jenkins profile with Kevin Durant in Sports Illustrated, but it, there was a really interesting line in there from Billy Donovan, which basically said like, I wanted to test out all this other stuff to figure out what I had. Like he basically said, we did things that weren't necessarily – uh, the best thing for the team at the time because we wanted to figure out like if this stuff would work once we got to the playoffs. And um, I, I mean, I guess he's figured it out because now they're beating the Warriors, who are supposedly like the greatest team of all time by thirty on every night. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, it's been it, it's been kind of a wild ride for him, but it is kind of cool to see people realize like, oh yeah, you know, well, maybe Billy Donovan he can coach a little bit. Yeah, which you know we all knew, and it was funny. I saw him um, when Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Kansas, the second one. This year in Oklahoma, that was during like the NBA All Star break, and uh, and he came by the game, and you know we were catching up, and I was like, "How's how's the job? And how, how do you love the NBA?" And he's like, "I love it." You know, it's he's such a good X's and O's, and like, you know, getting the most of people at the right time kind of guy, and you know, it's just they're just fun to watch. You know that that's why the Thunder have been fun to watch this playoffs. Um, so last question. This is also a Twitter question from Dave Simon. He's saying, so you obviously began your college basketball writing career with Ballin is a Habit, um, rest in peace, with Troy, and you guys did an insane road trip that I think made everyone super jealous, and you went to see a bunch of college basketball arenas and games and crowds and things that you'd always wanted to do. Um, you've now covered college basketball for NBC Sports for a few years and have gotten to go to an, a, a ton of big games and Final Fours. Dave wonders what campuses and arenas are left on your bucket list. The stuff on the West Coast is, is the stuff that I haven't gotten to yet. Like uh, the McHale Center in Arizona is definitely on the bucket list. Uh, the Pit from New Mexico, Viejas Arena at San Diego State. Like those are all great environments that I really, really want to get a chance to see one day. But number one on my list, I think, has got to be the Kennels, uh, Gonzaga, right? Spokane. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never been up there. You, you can watch those games on TV and just see how rowdy it is. You know, I did a, a big story on um, Adam Morrison's uh, season um, back in January, and I was talking to him, and he was like, yeah, like it was unbelievable playing in that environment. And I don't think it holds more than uh, maybe like seven or 8,000 people. I think it's kind of like the, the Cameron Indoor Stadium at Duke, but it's just so packed and so loud and so energetic. Like that, at, at this point, I'd probably have to say that that's number one on my bucket list. Yeah, I, I was there a couple years back. Um, Kelly, is it awesome? Yeah, it is. I was there for the Kelly Olenek season, and um, they were playing BYU, and it was it was awesome. It, so basically, you know, for all the talk each year about, you know, Mark Few and, you know, if he would ever leave Gonzaga and, and this and that, all you have to do is go to Spokane and realize why he hasn't because – a, it's super beautiful and very peaceful, and he loves going fishing and all these outdoorsy things with his family. But also, like their facility is awesome. They are they are the biggest thing in town, and it's so fun and it's wild. And it was like it you know is an eight o'clock Pacific time tip, so it's eleven o'clock on the East Coast. I see Twitter is like falling asleep, you know, as I'm watching this game, and I'm like, guys, they're missing a great game, great environment. Olenek had maybe 
uh, at least a double double. And it was just like, it was just a very cool place. I've also seen a game at the McHale Center that is also very, very loud and rowdy um, and also awesome. I, I, you know where I have not seen a game yet? I have not seen a game at Allen Fieldhouse. Oh, man. I got to get there. You got to get there. I didn't even see a really good game when we were there. I think we saw them play like Texas A&M when Texas A&M was not very good. And it was just still loud and packed. And the the cool thing about it is like one, everyone is just so packed in, like really tight to the court. But the other part of it is like when you, I think you can get like 15 or 16,000 people in there, but it's not like one of these big arenas where you have like different decks. Like it's just one row of stands that goes all the way up. And I don't know if that, changes the way that the sound kind of builds up in there, but it's just, it gets loud and there's nothing more haunting than hearing like the rock chalk Jayhawk oh, yeah. chant when it's 16,000 people saying it at the same time, like all right on top of each other. It's, 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 it's pretty wild in there. Uh, you've been to Duke, right? Yeah. Yep. We've been yep. to games together at Duke. That, that place, I didn't realize just like how small it was. Like you walk in there and it feels like a high school gym. Yeah. And you don't realize also until because it doesn't look that way on TV, like how exactly how much you feel like the crazies are on you and how close everything is, how the coaches are and the benches until you're there. But of course, you know, I've been there. I perfected the Cameron crazy selfie. Yeah, I started that trend. Yeah, you did. I tried to copy it. Almost it everyone has. It's, it and, you know, now good. it's now it's 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 trendy. OK, yeah. sorry about my dog barking. Yeah, Red wants to get on the selfie action, too. I know. He also is now finally a little bit bigger than a basketball. There was a stretch where he was smaller than that. He is now six pounds. Good for you, Red. Proud (laughs) of you, man. But he's pretty athletic, so I think I named him well because he's got a really good vertical, um, very strong, strong hind legs, um, very, you know, like he doesn't put on weight because it's all, you know, goes to muscle. So... I think uh, naming him after a sports figure was a good was a good idea. Yeah, it was definitely a smart move. And now you're you're going to get even more people asking you. Did you name him after your grandfather? Oh, I know, I know. Or like, oh, that's funny that you named him Red Auerbach. Like, do you know? And I'm like, yes, I know. Like, I I did it because every college basketball coach asks me if I'm related to Red, so I can be like, yes. And here is a very adorable photo of him. He is six pounds and a Bichon Yorkie. <laughs> you should just say yes. I well, you know, I I need to, um, or just I I've come up with so many good things that I could say. I could say, you know, I don't really want to talk about it. It's like, you know, it was really emotional. Um, I could I could say like I could just say yes now that I am technically. You should just tell them that uh, that you were the one that did all the coaching when they were there. Oh yeah, well I, I you know when Coach K asked me that. I got some good Red Auerbach stories out of that. And then I showed him a picture of Red, but he likes bigger dogs, so he wasn't that impressed. <laughs> oh, Red is he arguing back. Red is, Red is barking back. He doesn't back. appreciate Red's athleticism like, uh, like Red thinks he should. Exactly. Well, on that note, um, I will wrap this up. Rob, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And um, again, this is College Basketball Madness from USA Today Sports. We will have some periodic podcasts throughout the offseason. Um, and in the meantime, you can tweet me questions or email me. But um, Twitter handle is Nicole Auerbach and uh, Rob Douster from NBC Sports. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Nikki.